Okay. All right. So the, the first question that we'll look at will be the issue of actions that has been um, left untranslated as the word comma, but it actually just means action, comma or karma uh, in the Sanskrit. Now, <clears throat> in the old traditions of the Brahmins at the time of the Buddha, they had the belief system that there were just two kinds of deeds, good deeds and bad deeds, and that good deeds gave good results and bad deeds gave bad results. Now, the Buddha accepts that on its face value in the sense that there are actually good things that you can do that will give good results immediately. And there are bad things that we can do that will be harmful immediately. But if there's a time delay in there, things get a little bit strange in the sense that one deed is followed then by a whole lot of other deeds. And it's hard to see then when the result happens of exactly what were the interactions of all the causes and effects of all the deeds that brought about that result. And it's uh, kind of a good uh, way that the human mind works is that we try to simplify things. So let's take an example of buying stock on the stock market. And when we buy stock on the stock market, we don't even know whether it was a good deed or a bad deed. We're hoping that it's a good deed. And if then the stock goes up and we sell it, we've made money. So we assume then that buying the stock was a good deed. And if we sell the stock when it's gone down, then we assume that the buying of the stock was a bad deed. But in fact, if we look at just buying the stock when we bought it, there was no determination of whether it was good or bad. So how can we say then that good actions give good results and bad actions give bad results if we have to wait for the result? to figure out whether the original action was good or not. In other words, it's almost like it becomes kind of irrelevant. And the Buddha then pointed out that most actions are not purely good or purely bad, that people do have mixed motives. And not only that, but it depends upon what side you're on uh, as to whether it was a good thing or bad. An example of that would be when the penalty flag goes off, uh, the referee throws the penalty flag uh, on the, the field and half the crowd likes that penalty flag going up and they cheer yeah. and half the crowd doesn't like it. So we can't determine if throwing that penalty flag was a good deed or a bad deed because we're going to get mixed results. Right? This is an important quality that we have to recognize that we can't go around just saying that every deed falls into the class of good or bad um, on its own without determining what the outcome of it was. And so that means that it's much more of an issue of investigation. Now, the Buddha talks about a kind of um, a fourth kind of action. And that fourth kind of action is the action that uh, is neither bright nor dark. 
So we have the four kinds. One is bright action gives bright results. Dark action gives dark results, which is what most religions are based upon, but it's actually not what most actions are. Most actions are mixed, bright and dark, giving mixed bright and dark results. Uh, uh, the, the excuse me. The, uh, what is said in the Anguttara Nikaya is uh, like a bad deed can never lead to a good result. It's like the, it's with the negation. It's not like the bad deed brings bad results. It's that the bad yeah. deed can never, like in itself, the bad deed can never lead to a good result. And like uh, this is the cause and effect relationship that it, it doesn't exist kind of thing. Right, I can appreciate that, but that's kind of an ordinary teaching. Mm -hmm. It's an ordinary right view. And that's something that we need to discuss also. And that is, is that um, from the perspective of ordinary society, they think that they can determine what's a good action and what's a bad action because it comes with the definitions. And so then those people will say that good actions will always give good results and bad actions will always give bad results. But it's still the results that determine whether the action was good or not. For example, name me an action that is absolutely 100% good without a doubt. Uh, sharing the Dhamma. <laughs> I think, well, uh, it could be something bad because the Buddha also did not teach certain people. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Well, from the simile of the snake. Do you know the simile of the snake that the Dhamma has to be grasped correctly, that grasping the Dhamma. The way that we grasp a snake can be safe, that you've got to grab it by the throat very high up on his head and hold it correctly. If you grab a snake by uh, lower down on its neck or any part of the body, it's going to um, uh, be flexible enough to turn around and bite you. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens with the Dhamma. The Dhamma bites people. So you can't necessarily just say the statement that you made of going into the Dhamma is a good thing. Okay. okay. It it has to be done correctly. So um, uh, an example of that would be people who are practicing meditation because they want to become enlightened. Yeah, well, th this is like the wrong practice, but I, I was really talking about the right practice, like the Buddha, he, he would not say wrong he, he would not teach wrong dhamma but even though you know even though that he did not teach certain people so yeah like someone who cannot understand him possibly it can lead to his suffering so um, right. so we have to teach people according to where they are in the phrase good in the beginning good in the middle and good in the end always is followed by the right meaning and phrasing and what they mean by the phrasing is is that we have to give the teacher has to give the student what's appropriate for the student at that particular time that's the hard part about the teaching the dhamma especially when you're teaching to a big crowd is because crowds always mixed 
but on the one to one level, we can teach the student just what they need to hear and we can say it over and over again until it it gets in. So we have to teach the Dhamma good in the beginning, which means that it fits in with the way that the student thinks. And most students start out in ordinary right view. And so that would be that's also the same exact same as teaching uh, the precepts. That preaching the precepts in the triple gem is generally something that's done as a ceremony. Um, every time that people go to the Wad, it happens uh, when uh, retreats are opened and and that kind of thing. It's kind of like uh, giving the simple people who were simple minded some simple rules to get started. Yeah. Uh, a piano player becomes a piano player by hitting the piano's first note. Or the other way of saying it, that a thousand, a journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. Uh So we have to do things in that kind of order so that things are um, in correct sequence. And then we begin to recognize that uh, goodwill and good deeds. If they're done for selfish motives. May not be all of that wholesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I understand. Yeah, that's true. And so things get a little bit more complicated that way. Uh, so making a statement that all good deeds always give good results is true, but it's only true in the context that we have to define what is a good deed. And normally the good deed, the goodness of it is dependent upon the result. If the result was good, then the deed must have been good. If we can, in fact, chain it, uh, pin it down to the exact cause and effect, Uh that things get really, really complicated. And so we can't make hard rules like that. Now, let's get back to that fourth kind of comma because it's quite telling. The fourth kind of comma is a kind of comma that is neither bright nor dark. Now, what we mean by that is, is that it's not good comma and it's not bad comma means that we're not doing anything to harm anyone. Mm-hmm. Right. And so because we are practicing Dukkha Naroda and not harming anyone, there is no um, dark, dark actions there. On the other side, if the person is merely acting in the moment without any expectations of any results at all, in other words, he's not doing an action because he wants it to be good with a good result, or that if it is uh, an action that he's performing right now that is good, then it gets the immediate result. But normally what we mean by good and bad action that's associated with this law of karma has to do with the time delay in the sense that we do something good now to get a good result later. Yeah. Or if we do a bad result now and we don't get a bad result right now, that means that the bad result will happen later. And that's where things get really confused because later means now other actions will have a chance to uh, let us say, muck up things. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so there are actions that we can take that we think are going to give us good results, but other people will um, do actions that thwart <clears throat> our intentional good results and they don't happen. So things get really complicated, but back to this point about the fourth kind of comma, and that is, is that when we live our lives naturally without expecting good or bad results, then we live a more wholesome way. And the Buddha calls this then the kind of action that is neither bright nor dark is the kind of action that leads to the end of action. This is what the whole teaching of the Buddha then is all about is, is that coming to the end of action because we're not expecting or intending to either get good results or give bad results to others. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that good and bad results and good and bad actions is kind of an ordinary teaching. That ordinary yeah. religions are built upon that. Um, okay. The promise of a reward because of good reactions or the threat of a, uh, of a bad reward later because of a bad action. Uh, but everything about okay, I can hear you now. It, it, it was got uh, the the connection got lost for for a few oh, seconds and sorry. now it's okay. Sorry about that. So uh, what we were talking about was that the ordinary minded people are looking for good results and good actions and bad results and bad actions, but with the noble mind we're much more interested in what's happening in this present moment. That we take actions that give good results right now. And we avoid taking actions that give bad results right now. That it's all present oriented, let's say. And by doing so, if we recognize then that we're no longer trying to gain things in the long term, that we begin to live that noble life of actions that bring about less and less actions. So, for instance, if you want something, then that wanting means that you've got to go take a good action to get the good result. If you don't want anything, then you don't have to take any actions because there's no results to be had. So this uh, uh, action that leads to the end of action is not bright or not dark because we're not expecting any results other than what's happening in the present moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As, uh, as you said, there is no uh, like good, like just good action. There is no like bad and that uh, they're all mixed. Uh, can we say in the same way? Way that uh, like there are, there are bad actions that have uh, the allure of being good. Like there's something good mixed with them, and we get carried away by the, the small goodness. Right. And... The allure, or what can be called bait and switch, or the surface is more attractive than the interior, or uh, many different ways like that. Um, One of the ways that we can begin to understand things then is that 
um, this idea of good and bad uh, is not, let us say, set in stone. That some things, sometimes one thing will be good in one context and then bad in another context. And what is that context? Really, the context is whether someone likes it or not. If they like it, then they want it. And if they want it, then they assume it is good. And then they may assume that it's not only good now, but it's good for all time. And then on the other side, that same item or that same issue, and someone may don't like it. And because they don't like it, they uh, want to get rid of it. And because they want to get rid of it, they think that it is bad. And then if it's, uh, they really think that it's bad, then it may be bad for all time or evil. Mm-hmm. And basically what we're really talking about is just how people feel. And if you change the way you feel, then things that used to be bad because you judged them bad are now good because you judge them good. And it's mm-hmm. all a matter of personal feeling. There is no inherent good or bad built in much of anything. But what we do have is wholesome and unwholesome in the sense that, uh, excuse me, uh, wholesome leads us in the direction of more wholesome and unwholesome leads us in the direction of more unwholesome. Okay. And that uh, when something is wholesome, that means that we're getting closer to the facts, getting closer to reality. Mm-hmm. And that um, when, uh, when we're delusional, then we're far, far further and further away from reality. This actually fits in very closely and very deeply with the way the mind works that is in the description of Paticca Samuppada in the sense that it is our feelings that uh, ignorant feelings that generally run a person's life. That there is real power in the contact, but the contact that is there is not the contact of the actual reality of the situation, but what contacts an individual is his own internal representation of what he sees as real. And if the person can determine or interpret what he sees uh, as real is very close in reality or actually the same thing as reality, then that's wholesome and it's also wise. But if our interpretation of reality, the way that we see it is far away from the actual reality, Mm -hmm. then that means that there is delusion in it. And it's also the likelihood of bringing upon dukkha or um, unsatisfactoriness. And so close to reality then would be the real good. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah. So it's really that those deeper meditations, really, they are the, the real good because they really get more into reality. The filters of how you see reality, they get a little bit thrown away. I mean, otherwise, I don't see any other action that is really wholesome. Maybe being mindful in everyday life or something like that. Well, that would be, 
you're right. That would be then wholesome is paying attention, investigating and getting our understanding or our uh, personal view of it closer and closer to reality. And the closer to reality that we are, the less we're going to suffer. Yeah, yeah, that's and the, further, and the further away from reality we are, the more likely we are to suffer. So this is how we would uh, now reinterpret good and bad, because normally we are in the state of determining what's good and bad and good and bad and good and bad based upon two things. One is all of the rules and all the things that we've always heard about, whether it was good or bad. And the other one is the way that we feel about it. And that with in the Dhamma, the right way to do it is to neither listen to the old uh, stories or teachings or traditions or uh, old books or what our parents said or anything from the past. And also to discard what our feelings are about it, whether we like it or not. And just look at it and investigate it and keep investigating it. And so we can figure out exactly what it is. That's the safest thing to do. Okay. Treating it the way that we uh, feel is dangerous and treating it the way that we have been told to treat it is also dangerous. Treating it the way that it actually is, is the safest way. Mm -hmm. This, by the way, is the uh, uh, the primary teachings in the first part of the Kalama Sutta. You don't take anybody's explanation. Don't um, yeah. uh, uh, take it because it feels good. Don't take it because it comes from a teacher. Don't take it because it comes from an old book or it's the tradition or everybody thinks so or any of that kind of stuff. That really it has to be investigated. Yeah. And then when we investigate the actions, we can better determine whether the actions are good or bad, rather than determining that they were good because somebody told us they were good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. This is the important part about then actions. And so we can't just go around nilly nilly saying that all good actions lead to always good results and always bad actions always lead to bad results. Because who's going to call the good action a good action and who's going to call the bad result a bad result? Yeah. All of a sudden, I didn't speak about that. Stayed mm -hmm. just all this. So the so the Buddha's teaching on karma is much, much more sophisticated than uh, the the Brahman version of uh, the law of karma. But you can also see that Christianity has its own complexities to that. And Islam has picked up some of those complexities also. In the sense that the wages of sin are death, according to the Christian tradition. Or uh, a little bit more ferociously, if you don't do what you're told to do, you're going to go to hell. Mm -hmm. And if you do what you're told to do, you'll go to heaven. And there's a third way, and that is go ahead and do what you want to do, 
and then get forgiveness. Yeah. And once you get forgiveness, then you won't have to go to hell. So uh, even that one has the good, uh, excuse me, the bad action doesn't necessarily give bad results if you can get forgiveness for it, if you can get away with it. And, and is is that possible? Uh, I mean, if I think about it, if we say it's uh, good because of the liking and uh, bad because of the disliking, if we actually like uh, the that type of dukkha, that type of action, if it turns from disliking to liking, it, it will be like a masochist kind of thing. I think it's possible or, or not, or it's not. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure. Well, the the mind of the human that um, is, let us say, going along with this law of karma that good results, good action gives good results always and bad action gives bad results always has to have that. Um, well, what if somebody does a very, very bad action? And then he disappears and we don't hear about him anymore. Yeah. Then how do we know that his bad action that we saw is going to give him bad results? Yeah, it, right. Here's an example of that is, is that uh, a man in our village, everybody knows him. Uh, he gets caught, let us say, robbing someone or raping one of the girls and everybody in that village knows that he's done that and they're coming after him. But he knows they're coming after him, so he runs away. He runs to the next county, runs to the next village, he runs to the next country. Mm -hmm. And he got away from them. Does that mean that he gets away from his crime? Yeah, I'm not talking about that. Let's say, for example, if like if he robbed someone and then he, he runs away and then he found that that someone who he's, he robbed was a bad person. He was like, I don't know, a drug dealer or something. And uh, the fact that he robbed him, it could be like a good thing. I mean, he robbed a bad person and he will feel, uh, maybe he will feel happy because of the bad deed that he was initially sad about. Maybe he will feel good about it. So does it turn from a bad deed to a good deed? That's what like I'm right. Stopping. So you're bringing up even more complexity. Yeah, this is the way that we have to understand things that things are in fact complex and they do need to be investigated that we can't just offhand say all good action gives good results and all bad action gives bad results because we don't know for sure without an investigation. Now, here's something that's kind of interesting with that. Uh, good actions give good results. Bad action gives bad results. That's easy enough to understand. It's when it comes into that question of no matter what. That's when things get, um, let us call it magical. Because that story that I gave you, that he goes to the next village and then let us say he lives a good life and everything is fine. Then he dies and then he's reborn. When he's reborn, he's reborn in hell or something. So that finally he gets punished for um, the bad deed that he did in that first town. 
right? Yeah. This is the way that most people kind of think. Yeah. Well, here's the problem with that. Where is the uh, the the infrastructure? Where is the power? Where is the energy, et cetera? Where is the fuel for the fire? that keeps this thing going called, I'll call it right now, the comma machine. Other people can call it religion or the God himself, that God's job is to punish the wicked. Why is that God's job? Why is that God's job to punish the wicked? Yeah, they work to punish themselves. But they talk about the fear of God. If you're wicked, if you do bad things and you're going to get bad results, what is the mechanism that creates the bad results? Long, long time after the deed. What remembers that and keeps that system going? This is what the Buddha was trying to teach against is is that there is a law of karma but there is no mechanism to guarantee the no matter what part of it. That the guaranteed no matter what is actually magical thinking because we don't know what the future is going to be. We don't even know what is a good action and what's not a good action without some investigation. That what we do know is what is the result of the actions that we're taking right now? And so we will be heir to our comma in that very moment. That we don't have to wait for a long time to get the results of our actions, that the actions will be immediately. And oftentimes the bad results that we get from our bad actions are simply bad feelings. We feel bad because we've done something wrong. And that may be the only uh, detrimental result, but that's punishment enough. I mean, putting oneself in one's own hell is pretty heavy duty. Mm-hmm. And so this is what we really are looking at is, is that we are the heirs to our own comma, but the heir is immediately, it's not way, way off into the future. that the comma operates like a cause-effect mechanism. A really funny example, by the way, of that is, is that many, many years ago, there was a, um, a, a, a TV comedy series uh, called Get Smart. Uh, and it was about a uh, kind of a secret agent kind of guy. And one of the really funny things in there was is he had a particularly special gun that was manufactured in a special way so that once you pull the trigger on this gun, the bullet fires five seconds later. Five seconds. Wow. It has a five-second delay. Well, see, when anybody would take his gun away from him and point it at him and pull the trigger (laughs) and it doesn't go off, and so they think that it's no good, he'll immediately grab the gun, point it at them, and the gun will then go off. (laughs) Okay. Good trick. Okay, so that five-second delay is what people don't expect. They expect the cause and effect. They expect that when you pull the trigger, the hammer will go hit the firing pin. The firing pin will hit the uh, um, uh, the center tap. 
which will cause a little fire inside, which will call, uh, cause the gunpowder to go off, which causes the bullet to go out. But in that one gun, you can see how many cause effect, cause effect, cause effects there were in there, that it wasn't the pulling of the trigger that fired the gun. It was the firing pin hitting uh, uh, the center tap that was the actual firing of the gun. So everything was cause effect, cause effect. So the so pulling the trigger released the spring for the hammer to hit the firing pin, and then the firing pin hits the center tap. A lot of cause and effect in there that we are not aware of. Well, the human mind works that same way. That cause effect, cause effect, this little cause hits this little effect, that little cause hits that little effect, and it goes in a chain reaction. And is getting in uh, in touch with this chain reaction that happens in the mind that is what's uh, the purpose of uh, this investigation, is to actually see this process of how the mind works so that we can begin to change how it works so that we don't wind up in bad feelings. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so this this whole idea then of the delayed reaction, if that pistol that had that five second delay in there, that's got to have a mechanism. We can't just say that God made this gun and therefore because it's God's gun, if you pull the trigger, God will wait five seconds and then throw the hammer. We can't say it like that. There's got to be a mechanism, a timer in there something that's ticking away, measuring the distance back and forth to for that time second, five seconds to occur. And then the next uh, event in that chain reaction will happen. Everything is in a chain reaction of cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. And when we recognize that, there's nothing magical to it. Everything is interrelated in that way, in an actual, real, ordinary way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think we should understand, like, we, like really understand it in like in deeper meditation. Because, uh, as I told you, when I read uh, the verse, uh, I mean, I believe it. I really believe it. Like on like on a worldly sense, on a normal sense that good actions bring good results like good actions cannot bring bad results and bad actions cannot bring good results i mean like on a surface level i, I That's really agree not with necessarily it necessarily true let me give you an example yeah. okay that yeah. uh, let us say that two neighbors are fighting and the son of two of one of the neighbors calls the police and the police come, and in the uh, ensuing uh, things, the son who called the police is the one the police kill. So everybody will say, oh, well, there was a fight going on. He did the right thing. He did a good action. He called 911, or he called the police for them to come. And the okay. results weren't what they were expecting. Yeah, that we cannot guarantee just because we thought something or at one time we were told that all oh, when there's a fight going on, the right thing to do is to call the police because calling the police may not be the right thing to do. 
We don't know those things. That's the whole point of the teaching of the Buddha is, is that we cannot uh, understand things that are merely good or merely bad, giving merely good results or merely bad results. A lot of stuff is mixed and it needs to be investigated. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Very rarely is a, there's a one um, uh, uh, an action purely good from the inception through the act and through the result. Now those things do happen. The Buddha talks about it. I would I'll give you several examples of where there is good action that gives good results and there is bad action that gives bad results. Yeah, do you have like some a examples? Good, a good action will be your next breath, will be a good action, absolutely good oh. action, and it will keep you alive. If you don't take the next breath, uh, by, by refusing to take the next breath, that's the bad action that's going to give you a bad result. Okay. So there are good actions that guarantee those are actions are good. But then there's other actions that we think would be good and they wind up being not so good because the results that came about were not so good. An example of that is, okay, another another one very similar to the first one. And that is, is that little Johnny sees little Billy doing something wrong. Little Johnny goes to the teacher to complain about what little Billy has been doing. And little Johnny winds up getting punished. Not little Billy. Yeah. Often the one who gets complained. Another one would be uh, uh, the the runner uh, comes running up to the king to tell him that the battle is lost. Well, now the uh, uh, the runner, the messenger, thinks he's doing a really good thing. He's got to tell the king. The king really needs to know this. And as soon as the king hears it, what does he do? He pulls out his gun or his uh, knife and he kills the messenger. The messenger did a really good thing. He reported to the king the uh, the issue, but the king didn't like the results, and so he killed the messenger. In that regard, was telling the king that the battle is lost a good thing or a bad thing? In this case, it was a really bad thing for that messenger to tell the king that the battle is lost. Maybe that messenger, when he found out the battle is lost, instead of going to the king to tell him, he could have gone to the other king and (laughs) joined that group. (laughs) Yeah. But we don't know. That's the whole point is, is that a lot of actions, we don't know what the uh, result is going to be. So we can't determine if the action originally was a good action or not, that the results often determine whether the action itself was good or bad. And yet in religion, we try to go for, no, we've got to know in advance whether it was a good or bad action. Yeah, that's... uh... And we know that it was a good or bad action because it's written in our book or is by our tradition or because our preacher told us so or something like this. Yeah, that, that's definitely not true. But mm-hmm. how can, how can we know whether uh, is is there a measure? Is there like a reference that we get? Like for example, generosity. Maybe the the ten paramis are they a reference for good deeds? Like really good deeds. Like the intention of the deed. Like not the deed itself, but like we the maybe. Uh, what does it make it good? 
really good and not a mundane level not in a, like in the the real practice that will give an end to suffering like with dealing with others how can we make sure that it's a good deed well, what's our reference Um, okay, I, I see you now. Yes, now uh, we okay. had a, a very short uh, power outage, but then the router had to reboot. Okay. So. Um, anyway, glad to see that we didn't lose our connection. Um, so, you were you were talking about uh, an example yeah like no uh, like the reference of uh, our deeds our intentions uh, when dealing with other people when like when going uh, with life what's our reference to make sure at least that we're doing good deeds that we're not like uh, straying off the path okay well then this is the segue then into the other part of the question that you were asking but let's go into it from um, the perspective rather than comma. Let's start looking at it in the sense of the practice or the art of generosity. Mm. Um, many people will be generous because they're supposed to be generous. So an example of that would be when grandmother comes over on Christmas to give uh, little Johnny his Christmas present and he opens his Christmas present and it's a pair of socks and little Johnny just throws that pair of socks over in the corner and, and walks out of the room and mom says aren't you going to tell granny thank you for the socks and so he begrudgingly says thank you now really what we're talking about here is is that the problem was that granny <clears throat> was not being sincere. She was giving that present simply because it was Christmas. And so she gave something that was not very much appreciated. We do that, by the way, all the time. You could go so far as to say that uh, when Christians are out proselyzing or trying to give other people the gospel, they're actually trying to give people a gift that is unwanted. Yeah generosity we have to give a gift that's wanted if the gift is not wanted then the generosity is broken and so the investigation needs to be made and going back to the uh to the example with uh grandmother and little johnny if grandmother really wanted to be generous 
then she could go and talk to mom and says, what does little Johnny really like? What would really surprise him that he would really like it? Maybe a bicycle, a roller skates or something really nice. And then granny can give that to him. And when he gets that gift, he's going to be overjoyed. He's going to thank his grandmother. She's going to get really warm and gushy feelings out of it. That's what the generosity is about, is when generosity is met with gratitude. If you are generous and you give a gift that's not well received, then there's not going to be any gratitude. That way, both people are left disappointed. Both the grandmother and little Johnny were left disappointed because of that pair of socks. If she had gotten him um, a baseball club or anything that he really wanted, then he would have been grateful to her and her gratitude would have been useful to both her and him in the sense that it would have engendered wholesome good feelings. This is an example of wisdom. I'll give you another example, which is the, um, a kind of crazy one. And that is, is that it's um, also Christmas time or gift giving time. And the hub, husband gives his wife a pair of new panties and C-SPAN. C-SPAN is uh, our uh, E-SPAN, which is the um, sports channel on TV. And the wife gives her husband a blender and a toaster for Christmas. <laughs> okay. You see where that's going, okay? That people are giving gifts that they want to have, not giving gifts that they know that the person is going to uh, receive uh, gratefully. There's going to be some gratitude in there. And so we have to learn then to practice gratitude uh, based upon what the fact that somebody, if they actually do give us a gift, let's give gratitude back to them, even if the gift wasn't thought out, because we're the Dhamma dude here. We're the one who has woke up and, and to understand that this is a point of gratitude and generosity. And so uh, the Dhamma dude then will think about it to make sure that the gift that he's giving is going to be well received. Mm -hmm. And then um, the uh, the recipient uh, who is getting a gift, uh, if he is wise, then he is going to show gratitude for that gift. Mm -hmm. Whether he likes it or not, he's going to still show the gratitude for it because he knows that the gift was given out of generosity and generosity requires gratitude in order for the generosity to be useful generosity. Yeah. Okay, so now we're coming up into the question of meta that you were asking also about. Because this is, in fact, now meta is uh, meta is giving gifts that will be well received. And we don't give gifts that will not be well received. An example of that is generally criticism is not well received. Yeah, yeah. because That's criticism right. is not well received. It's better to not give criticism. 
people are so that there are no own views really it's it's really dangerous like you point out something wrong and oof, so. <laughs> i mean i think it's better to let them be with their own wrong views than make a conflict because even like right view versus wrong view when they meet together many times it leads to conflict and uh, I, I i don't know it seems like a bad it deal. certainly does any time that one person is trying to tell another person how to behave that person will not receive that advice with gratitude unless it's really well done skillfully so it's better for us to remember that that if we're going to criticize someone we have to offer that loaded down with um, friendship, uh, sweetness, uh, what in Thai language they call pakwan, a sweet mouth. Um, in English, we talk about buttering somebody up or whatever like that, that we need to um, work uh, to uh, open the door so that the criticism itself will be well received. And if it's not going to be well received, then it's not worth. In fact, it's detrimental. If we give a gift that's not well received, both sides would have been better off if that gift had not been given. That yeah, would be well, an well, act. well, that that applies to uh, I think like most people, like most people, ordinary people. Well, for, for me, I, I really don't mind criticism if if you see something wrong with with me or. Uh, behavior or anything. I mean, you can point it out. I think it's uh, it's it's faster to walk on the path when it's really direct. I, I don't really mind any criticism at all. I, mm -hmm. I, I'm good with this. The sweet mouth thing. It, it can make it longer, so it's okay. Actually, that's a whole different topic of how to uh, deal with one's uh, criticism criticism that's coming from other people from the outside, especially when they're not intending to give it as a gift, they're trying to shove it down your throat. But in any case, um, yeah, uh, being critical with others is almost always not well received. So that leads us back to the issue of um, how to get the mind ready. You see, when people normally hear about metta, especially in the concept of meta, meta meditation, they think that the practice of meta meditation is going then to give them metta that they can actually perform when they're out in the real world. And the Buddha has actually said, no, that that's not the case, that people who think like that have cause and effect backwards that um basically it's not the practice of meditation as a cause that gives a heart of met of metta but it's rather the practice of anapanasati of cleaning out the mind and getting the mind in a wholesome state that is what is the uh the primary cause for the situation of metta Oh, really? That's the first time that I hear it. And it really makes sense when I think about it. No. Mm -hmm. And so for someone to sit down in a meditation retreat and making statements like, may all beings be happy, may all beings be free from suffering, that really doesn't work for one reason, that it's too generalized. That we 
people who think like that, um, we there's two ways to see the world. When I talk about the world, a lot mm-hmm. of people think about the world in the sense of the planet Earth. And then on many of those people, the same group will think of um, the world as all of the people on the planet Earth. Right? That's what we think of the world, with all the world out there. Mm-hmm. But there's a much more wholesome way of looking at the world, and that is the world that we are actually in. The world that we communicate with, the world that is here. In other words, in my world, there are rarely more than five or six people. But in the minds of those who see the world as the entire planet, they've got kind of seven billion people in their mind. Yeah, and yet, and not even hum- not only humans, even animals and all beings. Everything, exactly right. So when we think of may all beings be happy, the right way to think about it is, is may all beings that I can touch, may all beings in this vicinity, may all beings within my voice range. That's a much way, a much better way of looking at it. In fact, they have the idea of the six points of the compass. And people think of this point of the compass as uh, up, down, north, south, east, and west. And the north and south and east and west just keep going and going and going. But in fact, there is a traditional um, understanding of that. And that is, is that the four points of the compass to the left and right of me are my friends and my family. The people in front of me, to the north of me, then, are going to be business people and associates that I have to deal with. The people on behind me are the ones who are trying to stab me in the back or do me harm. The okay. ones below me are the people who are servants or who are bidding, uh, doing my bidding, uh, grocery store clerks taxi drivers, all of those kind of people that are for hire. And then on top of or above us are the people that we would think of as um, authorities, like perhaps politicians or um, uh, religious folks, this kind of thing. So in all six directions, each individual has people around him But this is not to be thought of as the whole world. Rather, these are merely the people that we relate to. All of the people that we relate to, any people that we relate to, can be related to with loving kindness. But we don't need to go into the abstract. We don't need to go into the past in the sense of may all the beings who have ever lived but are now dead, may they be happy. That's ridiculous. And yet you will see certain churches, like uh, the Mormons, will keep baptizing dead people. May they be happy. Let's baptize them. Let's make them the dead people. Been dead 150 years. Never mind, he's a Mormon now. (laughs) Okay, so we don't have to worry about all the past and we don't have to worry about all the future. Also, we don't have to worry about way over there because, in fact, distance and time are related. In other words, if um, uh, 
people in Africa are very, very far away from people in Thailand. Therefore, it makes no um, useful point for someone to sit in a meditation retreat in Thailand saying, may all the beings in Africa be happy. Yeah. It would be much use, more useful for him uh, to say, may the people around me right here in Thailand be happy. Because those people I can relate to with happiness. I can't relate to the people in Africa uh, for them to be happy because I'm not even there. And so there's no reason to do that kind of abstraction. That's why this kind of practice is um, uh, kind of irrelevant, calling this uh, practice that we're talking about meta meditation. May all beings be happy. A much better thing to look at would be, may I be wholesome in this moment? May I get my mind completely cleaned out and functional in a happy way. And then everyone that I relate to, I can relate to them with Metta. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about Metta, there is, uh, well, I really ex- experiment with meditation. So I try different things. And uh, with Metta, there is like a certain feeling. I'm not sure whether it's wholesome or not, but it's really pleasant and it's very uh, like uh, it can be nice feeling when you think like when you think about meta, sometimes it's strong, sometimes it's weak. But I don't know, there's some kind of attachment towards it. Like may all beings be happy and and there's the liking of that feeling because it's really nice. And uh, it can be. It not necessarily so. The question then has more to do with your state of mind while you're doing this stuff. That in fact, uh, a very important way of talking about it is is thoughts of metta are wholesome thoughts. They are. uh, Metta is a kind of a wholesome thought. And those wholesome thoughts can only be wholesome when the mind is free from unwholesome thoughts. But many people who are practicing metta, they haven't gotten the mind cleaned out yet. And they still have hindrances, they still have unwholesome thoughts mixed in with their wholesome thoughts of metta. So again, back to anapanasati of getting the mind into a wholesome state is the most important part. Once we get the mind in that wholesome state, Metta can be part of that wholesome state, but metta is not going to get one into a wholesome state. We have to get into the wholesome state intentionally. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. I get. I get the difference. I really get the difference. Yeah. There's a difference between the wholesome state and between like the metta will not lead to mm-hmm. the wholesome state. Excellent. Well, I'm glad that you've got that. That's just, it's a subtle point. But metta meditation may or may not be wholesome. But if you have the mind that is wholesome, then words of metta are wholesome words. Okay, yeah. So instead of saying, wow, this feels nice right here, we can say, wow, this feels nice and it's spreading out. Everything is okay. Everything is fine. 
but then we have to treat everyone that we're that we're in contact with that way. But it's magical thinking to say that I'm sending meta to people who I have absolutely no contact with at all. That's yeah. when it gets into magical thinking. Grandiose, bigger than it really is, not real. Let's keep it real, folks. <laughs> yeah. Keep it real, which means that we get the mind into a wholesome state and then we have meta. Uh, and it, we don't have to actually, if you're thinking of, of wholesome thoughts, that would be um, okay to practice. The real issue is when we're actually out there dealing with other people. Mm-hmm. That's when we need the meta. And, and that meta is now only going to be available if our mind is wholesome while we're actually dealing with that person. And the only way to get the mind really wholesome while dealing with that person is by going off into seclusion and getting the mind into a wholesome state. Mm-hmm. If yeah. you are around people who have unwholesome thoughts and your mind is just going to be old, good old, whatever it is, then more than likely you're going to go into sympathetic vibration with them and your thoughts are also going to be unwholesome just like theirs are. For instance, some um, many examples. If someone is angry, they want other people around them to be angry. You've heard that misery loves company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Grief wants everybody to be uh, in grief. That's what funerals are about. So everybody can go together and get grief together yeah. or to have That's... misery together or have a pity party together or whatnot like that. But you as a Dhamma dude have to stand up and say, no, I'm going to keep my mind wholesome. And if my mind is wholesome, then I can deal with other people in a wholesome way. I could give them joy when they want to have pity party. They invite me to have misery and all they get is a big smile instead. Mm-hmm. Because now we're inviting them to have a big smile also. You come yeah. out of their pity party. We don't have to jump in their pity party and join in with them. Yeah, yeah. We can uh, invite them out of their troubles, out of their woes. Everything is not so bad after all. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I thought about the uh, Brahma Viharas first. It was uh, it was a while ago. I don't know, maybe a month ago. Uh, I went uh, to a bus. I was gone back to my old city and the bus was really crowded and so I, I was there and uh, there was a mother and her small kid they entered and it was really crowded it was a little bit uncomfortable and the kid was going to start crying and he looked at me and I said oh no he's going to start crying and I smiled to him you know I, I, I smiled to him like trying to make him feel good and that kind of stuff and he stopped he like he smiled he was going to cry and he smiled and uh yeah and he did not cry he like he was fine so yeah and uh, during the trip i was like thinking about the brahma viharas how could they uh be something good and uh i, I don't want to say that it's magic stuff but i don't know the mood really changed uh, at first, there were people who, who were talking about the government. They were complaining about the president, about the 
the government, all those kind of problems, but I didn't really care about it. I was thinking about the Brahma Viharas and I, I was really impressed how like a small kid, I just smile. He, I, uh, I prevented him from uh, <laughs> crying. And so, yeah, I, I ignored it. I, well, I that's kept a bit about... too much. That's beginning to get magical. What yeah. you did, what you could say is, is that when he saw your smile, as an invitation, he, yeah, he, uh, he joined physical. it. Right. Yeah. You didn't actually it's make it happen, but it. Yeah. yeah, I really get it because it's like an uh, instinctive behavior. Uh, people do it in advertisement and like the fake smiles, job interviews everywhere. <laughs> you have well, to smile. Well, the reason that people have fake smiles is because they don't have real ones. Real yeah. smiles work even better than fake ones do, and fake ones work pretty much. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a whole lot of psychology behind like the smile and uh, how you talk with people. So yeah, I, I, it's a very simple act. But I thought uh, I, I'm going back on the trip. What, what I'm going to do? I was standing also, so I, I was thinking about the Brahma Viharas. And really, the mood of the the bus really changed. You know, people who were complaining, they stopped complaining, and good music started, and uh, people start chatting with each other, and the mood got got That better. happens a lot. I remember one time I was on a plane. I don't remember because it was so long ago. Uh, but I, the things that I remember was at that particular point that there were three nuns trying to take four babies. I think that they were taking them back for adoption. And those three nuns just had so much trouble. Those babies were crying and crying and uh, the stewardess didn't know what to do and all of that kind of stuff. And the whole audience, the whole crowd of people on the plane uh, were uptight because of these four babies crying one after another and sometimes in unison. And so I went up to one of the nuns and said, can I hold one of these babies? Mm -hmm. And I held the baby for a while, Gucci, 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 and all of that, and got that baby quiet. And so did the, uh, then each of the nuns had just one baby to take care of and whatnot. Within five minutes, all three of those nuns could take a rest because all four of those babies were in the arms of various women who were on that plane. That was an amazing situation that happened. It happened many, many years ago, and it was something that, that happened out of just one thought of these ladies need some help here. And so I took one of the babies and it wound up making the whole plane's uh, travel completely different. From everybody complaining and hating these uh, nuns with these babies into uh, a goo goo gaga situation. It was quite amazing. Yeah, a good and example of how suffering is created because like, the experience doesn't create the suffering. Yeah, it, it ended up well for everyone, I, I suppose. It worked right. It really worked. And so that 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 was an act of meta. And it changed the whole situation. Where dozens and dozens of people in the vicinity of uh, where those nuns were sitting uh, gained benefit. So this is the power of Metta that uh, who knows what could have happened, but that that child who was grumpy 
could have started screaming because he was about to, you know. Yeah. And then the whole bus hated him and hated the mother and hated the situation. But here you go and smile at that kid. And he smiles back. Now he's not screaming and you diverted a major catastrophe. Yeah. Just yeah. with a smile. <laughs> yeah. This is why the the practice or actually the performance of metta uh, is not grounded in metta. It is grounded in having a wholesome mind. Rather than complaining about all of those babies, which is everybody on the train on that airplane were doing. They were complaining grumbling to themselves about those kids and everybody's attitude got changed out of a, an act of kindness yeah but the act of kindnesses don't happen with ordinary people because their mind is not in a wholesome state So the act of metta or the act of kindness can only be done once the mind is in a wholesome state. This is what needs to be practiced. Yeah, Just we have the same thing in, in, in Islam, you know, giving is not all giving is not just giving. There's different degrees. Uh, there are people who give with unwholesome, unwholesome minds, quote unquote. It's not really good, but the real giving, it's uh, uh, the merit of it is much greater. Yeah, mm -hmm. we have it in diff different religions, but the same kind of the same thing. You know why that's true is because the people who are in the Islamic religion are human, just like everybody else. And this is a human yeah. quality. We're really looking at another instead of from the aspect of Islam, we're actually looking at it as the aspect of humanity. This is a human situation. Yeah. The human situation is, is that there are many different ways to show generosity. You can show generosity with the wrong attitude or with unwholesome state of mind. And then uh, there's not going to be that generosity, gratitude connection. Yeah. And so we're talking about an, uh, a, a human situation and that you're you're right islam uh, or the uh mullahs in islam they know this they have seen it and they're talking about it that hey let's get our act together so that we could give our gifts generously through wisdom so that they're well received yeah um, yeah again about brahma viharas and metta uh, i really want to make them a practice like a reference for uh of how to act, of how to be in, in the world, because uh, I, I kind of have a, a lot of aversion. <laughs> I don't know, like the character is is not really, uh, like, I don't tolerate a lot of uh, wrong stuff. So I think I have to develop Brahma Viharas. Well, here's one of the ways to do that is um, remember or to remind yourself or sati that whenever you go out, you go out with the intention of smiling at everyone. You go out with a smile. You go out with friendliness. You go out with the intention that everybody that you see, everybody that you meet, everybody that you come in contact with is going to get a great big friendly smile from you. 
Okay. Uh, I was hoping you, you would talk about equanimity so I don't have to smile at everyone. Well, <laughs> equanimity is... I, I use it in the sense of sea legs. Sea legs, I mean, like on, on a fishing boat, that the captain of the fishing boat can go from one end of the boat to the other uh, while he's out at sea. To where a new person, what we call a landlubber, someone who has never been on a fishing boat of that size, when that boat is out to sea, he, it's very difficult for the landlubber to get from the bow to the stern without crashing into stuff. He's going to be banging into the side. He may heave over the side. He may go over the side. He may bang into the cabin wall. He All kinds of things because he doesn't have the stability because the floor itself for the deck that he's standing on is not stable. Everything is in motion. Well, in reality, our whole lives are like that. Nothing really is stable. We think that we've got a, um, a deck to stand on. And so we bring our equanimity. But when we recognize that uh, all the people that we're dealing with is like out at sea and everybody goes either up or down or back and forth and whatnot like that. And the answer uh, then uh, for what we mean by equanimity here is the same as the sea legs that I'm not going to fall over because uh, the floor got turned upside down. Okay, so this is basically what we mean by equanimity is uh, it's an attitude. I can handle anything. We've got this. I'm watching where I'm going when this when the floor moves under the uh, the or the deck of the boat moves up or down. I'm going to be mindful of that so that I can move up and down with it. OK. And so I can maintain. Uh, uh, so this is what we mean by equanimity. A lot of people have the idea that equanimity is like um, a balance to where everything is exactly equal. But a better way of looking at it is like a teeter-totter. You know a teeter-totter? The kids go up and down and up and yeah, down, yeah. back and forth. Right. right, okay. So the point of the teeter-totter is for it to go up and down and up and down. If both of the kids go sit on one side of it, then the teeter-totter is not yeah. going to do anything. It's not going to, uh, to teeter-totter. It's not going to do its job. Its job is to go up and down and up and down. And can the kids learn how to balance themselves so that they can enjoy the ride. Mm -hmm. This is equanimity, is the ability to remain our uh, mental balance when everything is topsy-turvy, when things are, in fact, uh, not stable. Okay. That's what we mean. And when you go out into the world, you don't know what's going to happen, right? Yeah. You really don't know. So that means that you're you're kind of ready for anything. Anything that goes up or down or back and forth or anything like that, you're ready for it. You can handle it. And that's equanimity. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. It's not being rock solid or uh, stuck or refusing to move. But rather, it's a dynamic balance. Yeah. Not a static balance. And, and, uh, and as you said, uh, Metta and I, th I suppose the Brahma Viharas 
all have should or at least they should have their root in uh, on uh, a wholesome mind. The mind should yes. be wholesome. And I really want to do like a determination to not do bad deeds because, but again, um, it's difficult to say when it's good and when it's bad. So where's really the, the difference between sending metta and doing a good deed? Because metta should be a good deed, right? The Brahma Viharas, there's something on the, the way. Well, you can do metta without doing anything. You don't have to do a good deed. Or it depends on what is a good deed. Or uh, like, for instance, a smile. Is a smile a deed? Well, some people would say, yeah, you could be seen as a deed. And others would say, no, that's not really doing anything. I was already smiling. <laughs> so I wasn't doing anything new or anything. So it depends upon the way that you're looking at it. Uh, but generally, um, metta is, um, let us say, it's a friendly attitude rather than a friendly deed. But if you have a friendly attitude, you're much more likely to do a friendly deed than you are to do an unwholesome, unfriendly deed. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm. What about karuna? So, well, karuna is uh is referred to as compassion but it's really not compassion because compassion means when someone is having a pity party you have that pity party with them you join in with them and this is not what we're looking for uh that's also the same thing as in in fact taking pity on someone um here what we're doing instead is inviting them out of their bad feelings. Hmm. How so? All right, to invite them out of their bad feelings rather than joining them in their bad feelings. Here's um, uh, an analogy as someone who has gone overboard. They have, uh, they're on a boat, they're on a ship, and they have fallen overboard. The, um, the wise thing to do when you have seen someone fall overboard is to look to see is there any life support equipment, any life raft, any life buoys around. But an ignorant person will say, oh, somebody's jumped in the water. They need to be drowned. Uh, they need to be saved. They can't swim. Let me jump in with them. And now you have people, two people in the ocean drowning. Mm -hmm. That's what normally happens when somebody has a pity party. Other people will join that pity party and they call that compassion. OK. So, so when uh, when somebody at a funeral is grieving, everybody grieves out of compassion. Mm -hmm. uh, which which is not wholesome. It's not 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 necessarily wholesome. It's not. Uh, it's a great possibility for it to not be wholesome. That a much more wholesome thing to do for uh, you is when you see somebody. Uh, let us say complaining about something. Let us say that he's complaining about the police or he's complaining about the bank or whatever like that. Then you just listen to him complain uh, without contradicting him, but you continue to smile. Eventually you might say, well, it ain't that bad, is it? And they'll kind of agree, yeah, it's not really that bad. And you can pull them out of their pity party. 
But if you go in, jump in with them and, and say, yeah, it's really, ra- really bad, really awful. The next thing both of you may be doing is plotting to do harm <laughs> to something. Okay. Okay. Uh-oh. So compassion is the quality of bringing somebody out of their dukkha. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so, so I still think the best translation is compassion or karuna. Compassion is really a bad translation. Oh, Even bad. the word empathy is, is uh, uh, well, it's a much better translation to be empathetic, to actually see the dukkha that someone is in. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that you have to jump into that dukkha with them. Okay. That's that's compassion, but that's not what karuna is. Karuna is to invite someone out of their pity or out of their um, dukkha rather than jumping in it with them. And so karuna can be operated uh, directly with mudita or sympathetic joy. That you come joyful, you see their pity party, you give them joy, you keep giving them joy, and they come out of their pity party into being joyful with you. Mm-hmm. But you so, can't do that unless you've got a really, really wholesome mind, because if you deal with someone who's having a pity party, their intention is to get you to join their pity party, and you feel bad just like they feel bad. Yeah. Should have strong foundation. And then comes uh, upeka. uh, Well, the upeka is what we just talked about. That's the equanimity or the ability to go with the flow, go with the balance. That you maintain your upright attitude or you maintain your wholesome state, even when their states are uh, up and down, in and out, wholesome and more unwholesome. Okay, so, so that equanimity means that you've got to keep it. You got to keep your joy. You got to stay balanced. You got to stay on top of things. You can't uh, let them get you down like they got themselves down. Uh, do you think that uh, they should be practiced all together or each one? Well, it's really it's it is all together. There is only one thing, and that's why it goes under the the label of metta, but we could also call it the Brahma Baharas. But Karuna, Mudita, and metta work together, and they can only work together so long as you have that upeka, which means you have the the balance, or you have uh, the ability to maintain the wholesome state in the face of other people's unwholesomeness. Nobody can do this in the beginning, just off scratch. That's why we have to go uh, to go into seclusion first. The first thing is to get away from it all, to go into seclusion. This is what most people think of in the practice of meditation, is to really get away from all of those people with all the unwholesomeness, so that you can recognize that now you've only got one unwholesome mind to deal with, and that's the one we brought into the meditation hall. <laughs> yeah. And once we deal with that unwholesome mind and get it in a really wholesome state, only then can that mind in that really wholesome state go out and deal with the world in a wholesome way. 
that mostly what will happen is people will get their mind into a wholesome state, go back into the world, and the world's going to help them get right back into their unho old unwholesome habits again. Mm -hmm. And so now we have to go back into seclusion to get the mind wholesome again. And we practice over and over and over again in seclusion, get the mind wholesome, bring it back into the world and watch it deteriorate and fall into the unwholesome, bring it back into the uh, um, uh, seclusion again, get it wholesome again. And pretty soon we can start to go out into the world and maintain that wholesomeness without it getting deteriorated. In other words, we've got our sea legs now. We're not going to crash and bump into things. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's so, about it. I, mm -hmm. I was hoping like, to make some determination to follow the Brahma Viharas. But I, I don't know how to do, how to go about it. Well, that determination that I was mentioning, or that sati, to remember that when you deal with other people, you're going to deal with them with a smile. Okay. You're going to go to those, anybody that you go to, you're going to go to them with loving kindness. You're going to be friendly. Okay. That's anybody that you go to, you're going to go to cheer them up. Okay. This is going to be a little bit difficult. Go to everyone with good cheer, with the intention of cheering them up. This is okay. method. Yeah. And you've got to have a whole bunch of good cheer because there's going to be a whole lot of resistance to your good cheer. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'll try it. It, definitely, it really works because I, I really tried it um, sometimes when I'm really, uh, really happy, for example. I'm, I'm cheerful. Everyone around me uh, gets cheerful. But I kind of don't have, I think, that upeka, and I cannot maintain it. Well, keep practicing. Yeah, probably because of the unwholesomeness of the mind, because as you said, it should take the, the its basis, its foundation on the wholesome mind. So, it, yeah, it really kind of makes more sense now, I think. Excellent, excellent. Well, let's go ahead and finish the call now, and we'll talk to you later. You go practice. Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. Good. Long one. Excellent. Well, we'll see you later. Thank you, Damarata. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. See you next time.